Podcast 3, Fire, Threat and Saviour. I'm Helen Marriage, Director of Artichoke, a creative company that invades public spaces with extraordinary art. Our work explores how art can change the daily routine and rhythm of a city, interrupting traffic and trade to offer unforgettable experiences to audiences. As part of Great Fire 350, which marked 350 years since the Great Fire of London, Artichoke produced a festival of arts and ideas, London's Burning, which included art installations, spectacular events and a talks programme. This podcast series features a selection of our London's Burning talks and gives a contemporary perspective on a significant moment in the city's history. The talks were presented in historic sites, financial hubs and buildings that survived the Blitz. Join us in conversations about how cities past and present have responded to crisis. For this podcast, we're at Bishopsgate, home of the Royal Bank of Scotland, where three different speakers give three unique perspectives on the Great Fire. They explore the historical and contemporary danger caused by fire and examine our fascination with fire as an elemental force. First to speak is Joshua Levine, who practiced as a barrister for several years before becoming an actor and a writer. His latest book, The Secret History of the Blitz, recalls one of the most iconic and misunderstood periods in British history. What was the Blitz? Well, the Blitz was, at its simplest, an unprecedented and unremitting series of bombing raids on towns and cities throughout the United Kingdom that lasted for eight and a half months in 1940 and 1941. But on another level, it was also a period of social misrule that provided, I believe, the conditions for the birth of modern Britain. More of that later. First of all, how wide scale was the bombing of 40 and 41. Well, here are just a few of the towns and cities that were bombed in alphabetical order. Belfast, Birmingham, Bristol, Cardiff, Coventry, Glasgow, Hull, Leeds, Liverpool, London, Manchester. I could go on and on. Even Dublin in Neutral Ireland was actually accidentally bombed at one point in 1940. And this wasn't traditional warfare we're discussing. The people of Britain weren't simply concerned with the Blitz's outcome. They were active participants in it. They became frontline soldiers, as they were constantly reminded at the time. So what was, from the German perspective, the point of the Blitz? Well, the Blitz, Hitler believed, would have such a terrible effect on civilian morale that the British government would be forced to make peace before some kind of popular uprising occurred, and also an attack on the political centre, attack on the centre of trades and imports would have its own uh, effects. And for this reason, at the beginning, the bombing was concentrated on the metropolis, the area with the most citizens, the centre of government, London. So from September the 7th, 1940, that's the date when Goering redirected the Luftwaffe to bomb London, the capital was attacked on 57 consecutive nights. Ballard Barclay uh, was a special constable in London. You probably know him better as an actor who played the major in Forty Towers. But at this point, he was a policeman, a special constable. He says, the first night of the Blitz, September the 7th, 1940, we were drafted down to the docks to assist. The place was in flames, entire streets were gone. We wandered around seeing if we could help and suddenly there was the most tremendous screaming noise. I didn't know what it was and I dived into a building damn quick and everybody dived in behind me and we were lying there and somebody started to laugh and I said, what the hell are you laughing at at a time like this? And he said, look up there and we all looked up and we realized we'd taken shelter under a huge glass roof. We weren't used to this. So what form did the bombing take? Well, high explosive bombs range from 50 to 250 kilograms. And then uh, there were these. Incendiary bombs, also known as fire bombs. This is not to scale, incidentally. They were nine inches long. They were made from a magnesium alloy. So when they were ignited by a small fuse inside, they burned at a very high temperature for about 10 minutes. They didn't explode. They weren't meant to explode, although exploding um, incendiaries did come in later. They simply were meant to start fires. Uh, at the other end of the scale were these. This uh, is a landmine. Um, now this picture you'll see is quite interesting. This is, uh, you can see the extraordinary size of the landmine. You can also see there two members of bomb disposal, quite possibly the bravest people uh, uh, to serve in the, uh, during the war. That's an officer, that's a man. Quite astonishing. They would remove the fuse 
uh, these fuses would, after a certain point, be booby-trapped, just astonishingly dangerous. These landmines were actually magnetic shipping mines with an adapted detonator, which were dropped by parachutes and caused colossal damage. They could take out entire streets. So if you walk through London now, it's worth having a look to see where there are gaps, either a single gap, possibly a whole row of houses. If it's a large gap, quite possibly a, a landmine. And as the bombs came down, the population took shelter. They took their lead from the air raid siren. Teresa Wilkinson was a, a warden in West Ham. She said, I was an air raid warden, but I had no authority to make people take shelter. One night we were passing a block of flats and this man was standing outside. You should get into a shelter, we said. He told us what to do in no uncertain terms. So we left him standing there and walked on. And when we came back he was still outside the block of flats, but his head was about four steps further along. This is Felix Topolsky's painting of the tube uh, at this time. Famously, Londoners took shelter in the underground. And the fact is, actually, they weren't allowed into the underground at first. The authorities didn't want them taking shelter in the underground. There were two reasons for this. One, they wanted to keep the underground moving. But beyond that, they were frightened, genuinely frightened, that a race of troglodytes, of underground-dwelling, anti-establishment people, would, would, would start to exist, people who, who, who would stay down there, wouldn't want to come back up, and they would lose control of a section of their, of their society. Well, the people took matters into their own hands. They forced their way down at Liverpool Street, they forced their way down at Hoban. There was a sit-in at the Savoy, uh, Savoy Hotel shelter, and eventually, there actually, you can see, if you go to the National Archives, you can look at the documents, documents of, of uh, discussing whether to let people down into the underground. You've got the commissioner of the police saying, you know, what we, do we do? Do we end up firing on our own people? Cabinet agreed that was not a good idea, so in the end they were just allowed to come down. And it's become, you know, one of the defining images of the Blitz. Pretty terrible conditions. I mean, people would end up sleeping there on the stairs. Uh, and yet Christabel Leighton Porter quite rightly says, when the war was ending, a lot of old people were terribly distressed, wondering what they were going to do with their evenings. They thoroughly enjoyed their nights down the tube stations. <laughs> and this is true. If you think about it, a lot of these older people, they didn't have communities. They'd been on their own for so long, not just older people. And this provided them with some form of togetherness, community, and they didn't necessarily want to leave. Dory Silverman from the Ministry of Information, he says, people from poorer homes suffered more greatly than the middle classes. Middle class people probably had a garden and an Anderson shelter. So this was another way you could shelter. People were issued with these Anderson shelters. You can see they're pretty flimsy. They're corrugated iron, they had earth on top. You could have up to six bunks, people sleeping in them. Um, but they were pretty tough. This is, if, if, they, if they received a direct hit, then obviously that would be destroyed, but a, a, a near miss, they could stand up pretty well. You can see most things are destroyed in the vicinity, but the Anderson shelters there have stood up to it. Then in March 41, these came into play. These are the Morrison shelters, named after Herbert Morrison, the Home Secretary of the time. A lot of people didn't go into the shelters at all. They stayed in the house. They stayed under the stairs, which was considered the strong part, or uh, under the dining room table. So the government decided to make, build a dining room table that doubled as a shelter. Uh, pretty claustrophobic, uh, but also a lot of fun at the weekend. Um, but this, uh, it, it was strong, and if a house collapsed on top of it, it would withstand it, but you still had to be dug out. Francis Goddard of the Auxiliary Fire Service in Tottenham, he says, after a raid in the early hours of the morning, my wife and I went looking to see if there was any damage nearby. On the Tottenham High Road, a bomb had blown all the shop windows out and people were laying injured. We were the first ones there and I ran over to a man with no arm. He was a shop dummy. They all were. From the tailor's window. And this is exactly what he saw. Now, this is BBC Broadcasting House in Portland Place. You probably recognise it. It's pretty much the same today. A bomb in October 1940 fell, landed through, and it, was, it landed on that floor, uh, and it was being diffused when it uh, exploded, and seven people were killed. But at that precise moment, the BBC was on air, and this is what was playing. This is the BBC Home and Forces programme. Here is the news, and this is Bruce Belfridge reading it. Tonight's talk after this bulletin will be by Lord Lloyd, the Colonial Secretary. The story of recent naval successes in the Mediterranean is told in the... One wonders whether Hugh Edwards would behave with such sang-froid. 
Now, one particular event, the bombing of the Café de Paris in March 41, sticks out, particularly, I find it fascinating. Present again was Ballard Barclay. He was one of the very first on the scene. Uh, this was him at the time. Uh, this was the Café de Paris. This is what he says. Barclay says, the Café de Paris was reckoned to be a safe place. It's underground. But they were dead unlucky in that a bomb entered a ventilator shaft at the top of the building and came right down the shaft and burst on the dance floor in front of the band led by Ken Snakehips Johnson, a wonderful musician. He was killed instantly. I went into this place. I saw people sitting at tables quite naturally, dead, dressed beautifully without a mark on them, dead. This is Tuxedo Junction. Uh, this was uh, the, the version by Snake Hips Johnson. He was very, very popular in his time. Now, overall, about three and a half thousand people were killed during the Blitz, which, though a very large number, was actually much smaller than had been anticipated because the great fear before the war was that the bombing would kill millions of people. In November 32, Stanley Baldwin said this to Parliament. He said, I think it is well also for the man in the street to realise there is no power on earth that can protect him from being bombed. Whatever people may tell him, the bomber will always get through. And he went further than this. He predicted that when the war came, European civilization would be entirely wiped out. And he wasn't alone in thinking this. This was the prevalent view. But when the Blitz actually came, the major problem wasn't death. The major problem was homelessness. People who'd taken shelter were bombed out of their houses and the government simply hadn't anticipated this. And the result became known as the Crisis of London. And the problem is very well illustrated by a case I've discovered called uh, uh, Crown and Rodway, Ida Rodway. Ida and Joseph Rodway were a devoted old couple living in, their, in Hackney in their 70s. Joseph had become senile. Ida, his wife, was looking after him. They were bombed out of their house in October 40. They had almost no money, no access to money. Their clothes and possessions were all in the bombed house. They had no idea where to get any help for any of this at all. And for a time, they were living on Ida's sister's floor. Joseph didn't even know where he was. Ida became more and more desperate. She didn't know what to do. She had no money. She contemplated killing herself, decided that would be unfair on Joseph, and she used to bring him his tea in the morning. She used to bring him a cup of tea. One morning, she didn't bring him his cup of tea. She brought in a meat cleaver and she slit his throat. She killed him. She went straight to the police. She said what she'd done. She said, I didn't know what else to do. I was putting him out of his misery. She was brought to trial at the Old Bailey where she was found guilty but insane. So she was sent to Broadmoor. In those days, Broadmoor housed uh, uh, women and she died there in 1946. If she had been found guilty uh, but not insane, she would have been executed. This obviously was an extreme case, but it was the kind of issues that was happening at the time. Along came this man, Henry Willink. This was the man who brought order to London when homelessness and the plight of the people, like the Rodways, was threatening to get out of hand in September, October, beginning of November 1940. What Willink did was to sweep away the poor law mentality. People who were trying to get help were treated like they were Victorian beggars begging for gin. He provided new housing, repairs, social workers, welfare initiatives, centres where people like the Rodways could go and get help in one place, didn't have to go to nine different places. In other words, he introduced a system of welfare. And all this was to pave the way for the welfare state. But interestingly, this man was a conservative. And the next question, up against all this, how did people really behave during the Blitz? Was famous Blitz spirit uh, a myth? Because much is made of Blitz spirit, cheerful men and women getting on with their lives, not letting anything get them down. To what degree was that true? Well, Alfred Senschel was in the fire service in London, the auxiliary fire service. He says, the Blitz brought an air of excitement that nobody experienced in everyday life. Everyday life is humdrum. You go to work, you come home. To me, it was out of this world. Now, of course, if you were wounded or someone close to you was wounded or killed, your house was destroyed, your experience was very, very different to that. The Blitz was an appalling time. But in relation to Blitz spirit, bear this in mind, this story. Joan Varley was a young woman living in London. She was smoking on the top deck of a bus one evening. You were allowed to in those days. There was only one other person up there on the top deck, a complete stranger at the other end. She was at the back, he was at the front. And as they were driving through Westminster, Joan heard a stick of bombs coming down ahead. The bus driver quickly took a right-hand turn to get out of the way. The bombs exploded elsewhere. But this is what she remembers. The interesting thing was that, of course, we were driving into the explosion. We didn't know the driver was actually going to be able to avoid them. And the man at the top of the bus came and walked down the bus and sat 
on my seat next to me, and we held hands. Now, the odd thing was that no, neither of us spoke a word. From beginning to end, neither of us spoke a word. And once we were through the uh, bomb area, got back onto the route, he then moved back to the front seat without a word being said. <laughs> that split spirit. This spirit is not a myth. That is instinctive blitz spirits, the people literally being brought together by the danger, by the fear. And the blitz bring out the best and the worst in people, both at the same time. I found this remarkable story. A man called Wally Thompson. Walter Thompson was a career criminal. And he, the blitz to him was a total godsend. He used to go out during the bombing when no one else was around and steal. And he had a gang of three others. And one night they went, stole a van, went to London Bridge, parked up there. They'd already staked out this warehouse. Bombs were falling. They went into the warehouse. So four of them started to manhandle a safe out. They got outside. A bomb fell nearby, blew all of them up into the air and the safe up into the air. They took stock. They realized they were okay. They started to run. And then one of them, a man named Spider, probably not his real name, noticed that there was a little girl in the third floor window nearby. Spider was a cat burglar, going up drain pipes, jimming up walls, jim was, was his thing. So he made his way up the wall uh, to the third floor, took the girl in his arms, started to bring her down. At that point, a fire engine drew up. Policeman was there as well. They sent the ladder up, brought down Spider and the girl. And when he got down, the policeman said to him, thank you so much, that's absolutely fantastic. Could you, please, can we have your name, address, your details? We'd like, we think you deserve an award for this. The last thing Spider wanted was any publicity. The safe was still over there. So he made his excuses and he left. But the point here is that in the flash of a bomb, uh, you could go from, from stealing a safe to saving a, a, a life. The blitz could bring out the best and the worst in people. But the increased opportunity, the blackout, the lack of police, all of these things meant the blitz saw a significant increase in crime. And police figures show an increase in crime. In London in 1941, 5,000 more arrests in 41 than in 39. And 5,000 more indictable offences than in 39. Here is a picture of some looting taking place on a bomb site. Ballard Barclay, remember the Café de Paris? He, he carries on. There was looting going on that night at the Café de Paris. This was one of the most awful things. Some of the looters in the Café de Paris cut the people's fingers off to get the rings, and that, to me, was the most awful thing. Because the fact is that Blitz was a time of intensity. It shocked people out of their rhythms. It encouraged unaccustomed good behaviour, bad behaviour, sometimes, as we've seen from the same individual. People took risks they never had before. In tiny ways, women going into pubs on their own. Bigger ways. Sex. Ronald Blythe says the Blitz was a time when inhibitions disappeared. People behaved amazingly. It was a permissive period, more secret than the 60s, never quite admitted. And certainly, uh, this was a time when boundaries shifted. Here's a cover of a freely available magazine, London Life, from May 1941. Uh, these are the girls from the Windmill Theatre. You could get that on a newsstand. Uh, it, it's actually a fetish magazine. I, um, I don't know if anyone's interested. It's probably not that kind of crowd. <laughs> So people behave in all sorts of unaccustomed ways. Of course they did. They might be dead tomorrow. The old rules simply didn't apply at this period. It was a remarkable time socially. Look at the social changes taking place. Here are a few. Evacuation was bringing people together from different classes who had never understood each other before. Poor children into middle class homes. People were eating the same foods, wearing the same clothes, fire watching, sheltering together. That was the rationing that was equaling out people's daily experiences. You had women's roles uh, and ideas changing. Women weren't purely expected to stay at home anymore. The state was sanctioning them to get out to work. Legislation was guaranteeing factory workers a minimum wage because thanks to the situation at the time, to the war, to the conditions people were living under, it was now for the first time in the interest of the authorities that the workers were genuinely well taken care of. So the scene was clearly set for the beverage report, for the creation of the welfare state. But what's so interesting is it wasn't the socialists, it wasn't labor who were moving this collective agenda forward, it was necessity. This was not a time for ideology. It was a time for practical behaviour. Just as Henry Willink, a conservative, solved the crisis of London, so Rab Butler, another conservative, was starting his move at precisely this time towards free education for all. This was time to make things better for the people of Britain. So the Blitz was, well, what was it? It was an appalling period. It was an exciting period. It was a progressive period. And far more progressive, I think, than has ever been acknowledged. Thank you very much indeed. 
That was writer and broadcaster Joshua Levine, and next to speak is Becky Bryant, the highest-ranking woman in the British Fire Brigade. In 1992, Becky enrolled at Bedfordshire and Luton Fire and Rescue Service, one of the first three women ever to sign up. She became the first woman in the country to have started her career as an operational firefighter and achieved the role of Executive Director, Deputy Chief Executive, in 2014. Two years later, she is now Staffordshire's Chief Fire Officer. Good evening everybody and uh, thank you ever so much for the opportunity to come and speak this evening. I have to say when I got the invitation and then I let, and then looked at the cast of speakers, I did wonder what on earth do they want a little old chief fire officer to come and talk about. So I gave it a little bit of thought and I thought I'd tell you a story, if that's okay. And the story that I want to tell you is the story of my journey over the last 24 years. What I'm really hoping though is that along the way I get you to start to think about why diversity and inclusion is such an important element of the Fire and Rescue Service of today. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get to that point. And I'm going to start, funnily enough, with the Blitz. So women and their role during the Blitz was really very much a couple fold. Firstly, we had women who were dispatch riders. We had women who were deploying resources through what we know today as our fire control function. And we also had women who would be driving fire engines to the scenes where fires had been started through the bombing. Now, unfortunately, this year, uh, London Fire Brigade lost Big G, who had joined the Auxiliary Fire Service during the Blitz. She then went on to join London Fire Brigade within their fire control function. And uh, Big G was described as a woman who, if you cut her in half, she had London Fire Brigade written through her. So she was a great loss to London Fire Brigade, and there was a, a very special celebration, albeit it was her funeral, of the difference that she made over her time working with the Fire and Rescue Service. So women started joining the fire service as firefighters in 19. 82. Now, I found myself at the end of university in 1992, some 10 years later, wondering what on earth am I going to do with my life? I decided I definitely didn't want to be a teacher. Apologies, any teachers in the room. But it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to sit behind a desk. Apologies to any desk sitters in the room. I probably will have offended everybody by the end of my, uh, my little bit. Um, but I knew I wanted to do something that involved physical activity and that would make a difference to our communities. Whilst in my last year at university, I happened to be working at a local leisure pool and there was a chap there by the name of Mick who was a friend of mine. And so I had a conversation with Mick and said, gosh, I've only got a few months left at uni, what am I going to do with myself? And he said, well, have you thought about joining the fire service? I said, well, actually, I, I knew a few retainers, so that's retained firefighters who uh, work predominantly in rural areas. Actually, yeah, I, I, I've got a rough idea of what it is that they do. Mick quickly followed that up with, well, we don't have women in Bedfordshire. You'll have to go and join London. So immediately I felt welcomed into a profession that I thought I might want to join. Um, Anyway, within a couple of months of that conversation, Bedfordshire and Luton Fire and Rescue Service, who were Bedfordshire Fire and Rescue Service at the time, started their first positive action campaign to really broaden the representation amongst their operational workforce. And I was one of four women who started in 1992 on a recruits course of 15. Now, being different immediately brought a number of challenges. Do you know the newspapers wanted photos of us all the time? Strange that, isn't it? Women, only 50% of the population. Suddenly we do a different job. People want photos of you. Uh, we had to prove that we could do the role without the help of men. So if we were required to put the big ladder up, then we had to put the big ladder up as a crew of four women. We had to have our hair above our collar. Oh, and we only had men's uniform to wear because there was no such thing as female cut uniform at the time. And that's all the uniform that we had. All of the firefighting equipment, as well as the sort of clothes that you see me in today. In training school, of the, uh, the 11 men, they had six showers to share. Great, almost one per two firefighters. We had one. So getting changed and quickly back into lessons and classes was somewhat more of a challenge for us. 
When we then went out onto fire stations, again, difference brought with itself some challenges. All the officers' toilets and showers were converted into women's facilities. You can imagine about how the officers felt about that, can't you? Um, but what was really interesting was that the resentment actually wasn't just on watches. It spread beyond that. And there were a number of wives of firemen, as they were known at the time, who clearly thought we joined the fire service to get a husband. Now, I need to bust a myth tonight. Those of you that have seen firefighter calendars... That's not real. <laughs> they absolutely are male models. I've worked with a lot of firefighters. They don't look like that. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that 1% of the operational workforce in the 90s were women. And that led to isolation. It led to discrimination. It led to some very high-profile employment tribunal cases. And our role was very much do some training, wait for the bells to go down, and then when the bells went down, we would respond on a fire engine. So we were literally firefighting. That was what our job was. It was very much structured around a command and control approach. You know, when you were asked to jump, you didn't ask how high, you kept jumping until you hit the height that was required. The difference that we brought, though, was quite interesting because, of course, women were generally smaller than men, so that meant we got put in all the small spaces. So if we went to an incident that required somebody getting through a very small window, oh, that would be the job for the woman then. We, of course, would be great with kids, wouldn't we? Now, you've heard already, didn't fancy being a teacher, so in my case, not quite that accurate. But if we went to an incident involving children, oh, that'd be all right, the women can look after the children. So actually, the work that we were doing at the time did not value diversity, it didn't value difference. In fact, they were alien concepts to the Fire and Rescue Service when I joined some 24 years ago. I did say it was a long time. I was asked by Eleanor to talk a little bit about running into burning buildings and what it's really like. And do you know what? You don't think about it because you train to deal with those sorts of things, the same as you train to deal with car crashes that involve, unfortunately, people who have lost their lives. The same as we train to deal with the threat of terrorism today. So because it is a trained behaviour, it tends to be the after effects that can um, impact on people. But what I want to do is bring you forward now to the Fire and Rescue Service in which I work today. Prevention is absolutely the DNA of every Fire and Rescue Service around the country including my own. Because it's not really right, is it, to wait for our residents and our communities to have an emergency to then ask for our help. Actually, we should be helping them not have the emergency in the first place. In my role, I am an operational officer. That means I still go out to incidents. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, will recall the Alton Towers incident last year, so that was an incident that I was involved in. I don't run into the burning buildings any longer. My role is very much around directing the plan, putting resources in place and making sure we reach a successful conclusion. And while I say prevention is part of our DNA, our 999 response is as crucial today as it has always been. However, nationally, we attend 50% less emergency incidents across the UK than we did 10 years ago a testament to why prevention is so important. I personally could do without going to another accidental dwelling fire death. They're not a nice thing to go to when you lose a member of your community. We take it very personally in the Fire and Rescue Service. We do feel like we've failed that individual. That's how important prevention is to us today. And what prevention brings with it, of course, is the opportunity to work with our communities on a real face-to-face -face basis. Now, if you look around the audience tonight, what you'll see is a plethora of diversity. And in the Fire and Rescue Service, initially that was thought to be very much around the protected characteristics by law. But actually, diversity and its nature is becoming even more complex today than it's ever been. So our involvement in things like supporting survivors of domestic abuse, where actually that survivor only wants to work with a woman. Supporting various different faiths, where actually they only want to work with people from their faith, their religion, or a woman. 
working with young people, working with old people, working with community groups that have various different vulnerabilities. You can see why diversity is so important in the British Fire Service today. But, crucially, it's no good just being diverse. What you have to be as an organisation is inclusive. Because without listening to the voices of the people who bring the difference into our organisation, what we won't do is get the best for our communities. And that's what we come to work every single day to deliver, the absolute best for our communities. Our staff have a huge impact every day with our residents across Staffordshire specifically. Last year, we delivered 30,000 home fire risk checks. This is 30,000 opportunities to change people's lives. Our staff do that on a daily basis. It's absolutely not something I ever thought we would be doing when I joined 24 years ago, and all I did was train, wait, and respond. Now, what I want to just briefly talk about before I come to close is the... Uh, the position as it stands within the Fire and Rescue Service at the moment. So back in 2000, a thematic review was conducted which looked at representation levels. And what it found was that uh, there were, in the region of about 2.5% were women, and it was even less for BME. So government set a number of targets. Those targets were that by 2002, 4% would be women. By 2004, 9% would be women. And by 2009, 15% would be women. Go back to the 24th of May this year when the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, made her inaugural speech about fire reform and she stated, 95% of operational firefighters are men. 96% of operational firefighters are white. We haven't come a long way, have we, in terms of the diversity within the Fire and Rescue Service. And the question is why? Is it because leaders aren't committed to equality and diversity? Is it because targets were removed? And that was what people were aiming for. Is it because inclusion means letting go of control and moving from a command and control approach to one that is much more open and empowered? Is it because of the cuts that Fire and Rescue Services aren't actually recruiting? And where we are recruiting within our retained workforce, it's actually quite difficult. Now, I think it's all of the above coming together. The question for me is, we either value difference or we don't. We either run our organisations valuing the difference that our staff bring every single day, or we don't. But actually, I think there's one other factor. And what I want to do is to just close on a video. And I want you to think about this question. What can you do after you leave here this evening to help redress the balance, specifically in relation to female firefighters? This afternoon, we're going to draw people doing different jobs. And the first job we're going to draw is a firefighter. Have a think in your head what a firefighter looks like. What's your firefighter called? Mine's called Firefighter Gary. Firefighter Stan. Firefighter Simon. He's big and strong. He's got a big helmet on. That's brilliant, isn't it? Next, we're going to draw a surgeon. Have you thought of a name for your surgeon? Jim Bob. He's a brain surgeon. I think he would wear a stethoscope. He gives you medicine. That's his ambulance. Okay, next we're going to draw a fighter pilot. This is his jet plane. He rescues people. He likes to do stunts in the air and stuff. Okay, now who would like to meet these people for real? Yeah! My name's Tamsin and I'm a surgeon in the NHS. My name's Lauren and I'm a pilot in the Royal Air Force. My name's Lucy, I'm a firefighter in the London Fire Brigade. <laughs> so who wants to know how to do an operation? Who's putting them up? I'm trying my stethoscope. Oh, we'll put this in here. What does it look like? There you go. Now you're a proper fighter pilot. So into your ears. Can you hear that? Yeah. It's really Mine's good. It's much better, yeah, it's much better than my kids' one. Thank you very much. You were listening to the wonderful Becky Bryant, Staffordshire's Chief Fire Officer. 
Next, we hear from Ed Galea, the founding director of the Fire Safety Engineering Group, a fire and evacuation modeling research team. They have won a string of national and international awards for their innovation in fire safety. Thanks very much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to give you a very quick talk. and I'm going to cover three topics. Uh, and it's all about fire engineering, but I'm going to be focusing on the human side of fire engineering and really talking about the psychology of human behaviour during evacuation. So the first part of my talk is about the threat of fire. Where do you think we are at greatest risk from fire? Well, the Great Fire of London has gone down in history as one of the city's most catastrophic events. While officially only six lives were lost, in reality, it's more like thousands were killed during the fire. 350 years on from the Great Fire, where are we at greatest risk from fire? Now, if you look at the statistics in the UK, uh, the number of fire fatalities and casualties from fire is falling year on year, and that's great news. Uh, but in 2013-14, we had something like 322 people killed in the UK and 8,000 people injured. And in London, we had 43 fatalities and nearly 1,200 people seriously injured. But where do you think we are at greatest risk of fire today? Is it in the airports? Is it in airports? Is it in their hotels? Is it in the underground? Or is it in high-rise buildings? Where do you think we are at greatest risk of fire? Well, in London, the UK, and around the world, the vast majority of fire deaths and injuries occur in the place where we feel most safe, our homes. About 70% of fire fatalities in the UK and London occur in the comfort and security of our own homes. But accidental dwelling fires only account for about 14% of all reported fires in the UK. Small number of fires, and yet the majority of fire fatalities and injuries. And what's actually more worrying is that while the number of fires are decreasing year on year, your chance of surviving that fire or being severely injured has not improved one jot. So while we have fewer fires, if you're unlucky enough to have a fire, you, you haven't really improved your chances of surviving. Why are so many people being killed and injured in domestic fires? What can we do about it? How effective are the government messages like get out, stay out, put your fire detector in? How effective is this? Well, until we understand the issues uh, that are driving the human behaviour in these situations, we can't really begin to tackle the problem. And so I was uh, fortunate enough to have a, a major research project in collaboration with Kent Fire uh, and Rescue Service and SOFOA. Uh, it was a KTP funded by the EPSRC and Innovate UK. We called the project Life Bid. And as part of Project Life Bid, we were interviewing people who had suffered domestic fires and trying to understand what is it that they're doing. And in addition to that, we ran a survey to try and measure people's responses. We were trying to understand how do people react and interpret what's going on in a fire. And so we came up with this uh, survey, which included three short clips of videos of a domestic fire at three different stages of the fire, early, mid and late stage. And we asked the people quite simply, which of these fires do you think you could safely tackle? And the result was shocking. Over 50% of people thought they could safely tackle that fire. The, over 50%. And we believe this is why we are seeing so many injuries, or one of the reasons we're seeing so many injuries and fatalities in domestic fires. It's what I call the friendly fire syndrome. People don't understand how dangerous these fires are. They think they can safely tackle that. In that situation, when we, when we were filming that, the firefighters went in with full BA, full kit to tackle that. And yet people think they can safely tackle that. Okay, so this is the first part of the talk. I was talking about the first stage, if you like, fires in your domestic dwelling. I'm going to move up a scale. I'm going to talk about wayfinding. How many of you know the way out of this auditorium in an emergency? How many of you can see the evacuation routes? Well, actually, this is a really poorly designed structure, and it should actually be... 
condemned because I guarantee none of you can see the emergency exit signs from where you're sitting. And that's down to the poor design of this uh, uh, structure. But what we found, uh, one of our projects, we interviewed 350 survivors from the World Trade Center evacuation. And one of the things we discovered in that, uh, uh, in that study was people didn't know where the emergency exits were and they couldn't find them. Uh, here is a quote from one of the people that we interviewed. Honestly, I didn't know where the evacuation stairwells were. They say, look for the exit signs when you go in a place. They really mean that because, you know, unless something's happened before, you're not going to be able to find it. And this struck us that people didn't know where the emergency exits were and they didn't even see the signs that were leading them to the emergency exit. And we thought, come on, that can't be right. So we started another study. And in that study, we wanted to do some experiments with people to find out, could they figure out how to get out of a, a structure? And we, we, we ran an experiment, and this is the first part of it. It was a simple T intersection, and we put people in there. We said, the alarm's gone off. You've got to get out of here as quickly as you can. And if you get out of this building in three minutes, I'm going to give you 10 quid. And we, measured, we wanted to see what people would do. Now, directly in front of them, uh, there is an um, emergency exit sign. And if you follow the emergency exit sign, you're going to, that's going to be the quickest way out. So what did people do? In the first video, we'll see the person coming up. Uh, we can see that she saw the sign and she's heading in the right direction. Good job. And then we had another person go through. There's the emergency exit sign. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go left? Do I go right? And she goes the wrong way. She didn't see the sign that was directly in front of her. Unobstructed. Legally mandated size. And what we found was that 61% of the test subjects failed to see the sign that was directly in front of them. And not only that, if you didn't see the sign, it took you 5.6 seconds on average to figure out which way to go, and normally you, and you'd go the wrong way. If you saw the sign, you'd figure out which way to go in 2.6 seconds, and you'd go in the right direction. Okay, so that told us that signs can be very effective, but people don't see them, they're blind the signs. And this is what I call learned irrelevance. You see the signs every day and they mean nothing to you because you don't have to evacuate, so you teach your brain to ignore them. And so that's why these signs become invisible. So we came up, we said, look, how can we make these signs stand out better? We teamed up with a company called Evaclite and we came up with a new concept for emergency evacuation signs. So when the alarm goes off, this is what happens in our sign you get a flashing LED that is pointing in the direction we want people to go. And when we repeated the experiments, what did we find? 85% of the people saw the signs and followed them. 85%. And not only that, the decision time was reduced from 2.6 seconds to 1.8 seconds. So a huge improvement in how people can find their way out of unusual uh, and unfamiliar structures. But it's not only sending people to the emergency exit. What happens in a terrorist situation where there's a gunman down a particular route? Or what happens if there's a fire down your emergency exit route? These are uh, still images from videos from the Nairobi shopping mall terrorist incident where the guys in the security control room could see where the terrorists were, but they had no way to tell the people, don't go that way, because the terrorists were there. They had no way to tell them that. So we started thinking, well, if we're going to make our signs dynamic, we can also make the signs indicate which way not to go. So we came up with an additional concept and we said, let's put a flashing red cross on the sign if we don't want people to go in that particular way. And we tested this in an international survey and we found 93% of the people that saw this sign could understand what it meant. We didn't have to explain it to them. So it was intuitive. And this is people from Japan and China and Korea, the United Kingdom, Germany, all over the world. They could figure it out. Okay, so that's really important because if we have to tell people what to do, how to interact with these signs, it's not going to work. It's got to be intuitive. And then we took it a next step further. We had a European Union funded project and we tested this for real on a large station in Barcelona. And here we had about 100 people piled up at one end of the platform. There are four exits and on the first three exits we have the red cross and on the last exit we have the flashing arrow. And we didn't tell the people anything, we just said you've got to get out of here as quickly as you can. And what we found was that 66% of the people actually followed the sign without us having to explain anything to them. 
which demonstrates how intuitive the system is. We could lead people where we wanted to go simply by using these flashing signs. Uh, this concept now, we're trying to spread that out around the world. There are several companies around the world that are interested in this concept, and we're hoping we're going to bring the humble, dumb emergency exit sign into the 21st century using this concept. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about is urban scale evacuation. Today, our cities are not immune from catastrophic events such as the Great Fire. We're faced with floods. In, certainly in London, we're faced in floods. This is the, from the fire, uh, floods in London from 2015. And with global warming, uh, we could be faced with much, much more severe floods in London and throughout the UK. Wildfire is also a growing threat around the world because of climate change as well. And even here in the UK, we now have wildfire is high on the government risk register for potential risks to our society. This is the fire that uh, occurred a few months ago in Canada in Fort McMurray, which required 80,000 people to be evacuated from a city. A city, not some people living out in the bush, 80,000 people to be evacuated from a city. This is uh, a still picture from the Swinley Forest Fire in Berkshire. This fire in 2011 was one of the most severe wildfires in UK history, and this threatened a large conurbation. And it was only because the wind changed that city was actually saved. So wildfire is something we have to consider in the UK as well. But perhaps post 9-11, our greatest concern is uh, the threat of terrorism. Terror attacks such as that occurred in uh, New York on 9-11 uh, are potentially quite um, uh, concerning, but what about a CBRN incident, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear incident in our cities? How do we plan to evacuate cities that are faced with those threats? How do we begin to plan for these things? How do we manage that sort of large-scale incident? Well, at Greenwich, we've been developing our what we call agent-based evacuation modelling simulation tools for the last 25 years. And these tools are predominantly used for the design of buildings, um, uh, aircraft, passenger ships, underground stations, uh, and, and the like. Uh, but uh, on the back of a project, it's a couple of projects we've had funded by the European Union, uh, an EU FP7 project and now a Horizon 2020 project, we are expanding our modelling capability, not just to look at buildings, but to look at cities. How can we use these modelling tools to simulate large-scale evacuation? Now, this is not only useful in helping us plan how we would manage the evacuation, we're also looking at live incident management tools and an advice system to give to people during an actual incident to help the people trying to manage that figure out what to do. And we've expanded the software so that it can actually interact with things like Google Maps and OpenStreetMaps so that it can take into account the entire layout of a city. And this is an example of some work we did just recently. Here we're looking at a city complex. There's only a small section of a city, one kilometre by one kilometre, 10,000 people in there. And we're looking at an advancing tsunami wave. And we're looking at how quickly the tsunami wave spreads into the city and what are the people going to do? Can we get the people out from uh, the uh, threatened area in a certain amount of time? And, and what can we do to improve their chances of getting them uh, away? Uh, this is only a small section. The Tokyo government want a model of this type to simulate tsunami for the whole city of Tokyo. Massive challenge. And we're hoping we're going to be able to help them with that challenge. Bringing it a little bit closer to home, this is a, some work we did. This is the Greenwich Peninsula. Uh, and uh, this is the Canary Wharf area. And there are 205,000 people uh, working in that area. And the question we were asked was, how do we plan to evacuate 205,000 people from the Canary Wharf Peninsula if there's a terrorist attack on that area? And the only way out is to travel north. And there are a number of roads and uh, passageways out of there. But which of those passages and roadways did you close and keep for the emergency services to come in? You can't have pedestrians and emergency vehicles on the same road. 
Which one do you close? Does it make a difference? Well, in this simulation, we closed a particular road and we could clear the area in about three and a half hours at closing one particular road. And then in this simulation, we decided to close what was the accepted wisdom of which road you would close. And we found it would take 6.7 hours to clear that space. So through the simulation, we can help and plan how you would manage that sort of large-scale evacuation. So you don't leave it to trial and error at the, at the time of the incident. You don't make mistakes during the actual incident. You can plan and prepare for that. Okay, my last slide. I just want to emphasize that safe evacuation is challenging and requires careful planning. It just doesn't happen on its own. Assumptions can be dangerous. Magic numbers, uh, uh, intuition and so on, this can be very dangerous when we're planning large-scale evacuation. Good planning is evidence-based and you need the data. You need to have the preparation before you even contemplate uh, taking on something of that magnitude. To survive your next uh, great fire, there is one golden rule I keep on telling people. Chance favours the prepared mind. Plan. Think about it. To improve your chances, please try and remember one simple word, apps. Everyone talks about apps these days. Remember apps. A for awareness. Be aware of your surroundings. Look for alternative exits. Listen to the PA announcements. Preparedness. Have a plan. Think about what you're going to do. And speed. Every second counts. Every second can make the difference between life and death. And if you waste time, such as those people did uh, in the recent evacuation of the Emirates aircraft, getting their uh, baggage out of their lockers, uh, we, saw, we all saw that on, on, on the news and the video clips, these people are potentially risking their lives, the lives of other people, and of the rescue services that have to go in and rescue these people because they're wasting precious time. Speed is the utmost important. Every second counts. Now, uh, uh, there's an appeal to all of you here. We are running a major project at the moment, uh, and we'd like you to participate in what we call citizen science and assist us to build our human behaviour evidence-based. There's a website there. Uh, it's http slash colon colon bit.ly slash sign dash survey, sign dash survey. It would, would really like you to go to that website and complete our online survey. You'll see some videos and we just want to hear what you've got to say. And, and your input can help us save lives in future incidents. Thank you very much. That was Ed Galea closing this London's Burning podcast. Many thanks to all the speakers, Joshua Levine, Becky Bryant and Ed Galea. Thanks to Royal Bank of Scotland Bishopgate for hosting the talk. London's Burning is produced by Artichoke with founding sponsorship from the City of London Corporation and support from Arts Council England and the Department for Media, Culture and Sport. The London's Burning talk series is in association with 5 by 15. You can listen and download other podcasts from this series by searching for Artichoke Trust on iTunes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>